Yeah, the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence uh, on ThinkTech here. I'm Jay Fidel. This is Community Matters. And we're talking with Aaron Davis, who is a, a daughter of Hawaii, if you will, uh, who is practicing in the gun violence, uh, you know, uh, gun violence practice in, in Washington. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you so much, Jay, for having me. It's my pleasure to be on, and it's always a treat to uh, talk to people in my what I consider my real home, which is Hawaii. Of course. And we will always consider you a daughter of Hawaii. <laughs> so you're doing really important, interesting work with the Brady campaign. Can you tell us so we, every, we all understand what is the Brady campaign? How did it get started? What does it do? And what do you do for it? Absolutely. And before I start, I just want to thank you for having me on and allowing um, and lifting up this issue on your show and lifting up Brady's work. Um, it's really important to us for, for um, people to be informed about the issue and support our work. And, and Jay, thank you for that. So I work for an organization called the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. And uh, this is a gun violence prevention organization that has been in existence really since the 70s. Um, we started off originally as hand, hand violence, handgun control was the name of the organization. And then after Jim Brady was shot, Jim Brady was Ronald Reagan's press secretary. And after he was fatally, or after he was shot in the attempt to assassinate President Reagan, he suffered injuries that left him permanently paralyzed. Um, and him and his wife, Sarah Brady, became huge advocates in gun violence prevention to try and change the law. Uh, and what they did was they worked with the organization that later became named for them, which is Brady. And um, they passed the Brady Bill, which is one of the most important pieces of legislation that has ever come to be in the gun violence prevention movement because it required federal background checks to, to occur when you sell a gun. You could no longer just walk into the store and buy a gun. You had to go through a background check. So it was the first substantial federal law related to gun safety. And it was a huge, huge um, accomplishment by them. And to honor them and to honor their legacy and to honor the work, our organization was renamed for Jim and Sarah Brady. Now, what I do at Brady, I mean, Brady is a large organization. We work across Congress, courts, and we work across the communities to really wait, raise awareness about gun violence and ultimately save lives is our goal. And what I do is I am um, the senior counsel for trial and appellate litigation, and I work on a legal team that has been established for about 30 years. And what we do particular, particularly is we bring impact-driven litigation against different actors in the gun industry. So what that means is that, you know, every major social issue has been reformed through impact litigation. So what Brady does is we bring important cases, we create important precedents, and we pave the way for private lawyers to bring lawsuits um, on behalf of victims of gun violence. So the goal is that through this impact litigation, um, to really change the industry, to change the practice um, of how gun industry actors, and hopefully make our community safer. You know, a lot of people think that the federal government is broken, Aaron. They think that Congress is broken. Um, even the, the um, gun bill that was passed two weeks ago is, um, 
um, it's it's not strong enough. A lot of people think that, and um, and that you know they worry about the courts. They worry about some of the judges who've been appointed in recent years during the Trump administration in the federal system and in the state system, for that matter. They worry about those judges too, uh, and they worry a lot about the Supreme Court, uh, given its recent decisions, uh, including in gun control. Um, and so um, you know, here you are. Um, operating on the basis that the courts will do the right thing. What's your level of confidence in that? So I am um, traditionally an optimist and I am encouraged and I hope that, you know, even within the political landscape, that good can be done both legislatively on the federal level. I think that bipartisan Communities Act was a wonderful starting point. It accomplished a lot, and it um, even though there was a lot that wasn't included, it it will definitely save lives. We definitely have more work to do, and certainly the the court system presents its own challenges. But there are a lot of good judges, and there are some good laws out there. And our hope is that bringing these cases will continue to reform behavior. You know, if you had, if we all had a working Congress. Um, a Congress that would be sensitive to, you know, the tremendous gun control problem we have in this country. A lot of the uh, issues that you deal with in the courts um, would be resolved by statute. Uh, isn't it true? I mean, that, and I know that you wouldn't mind having, you know, those issues resolved in Congress. But what would you like to see in Congress, assuming Congress, you know, um, was more sensitive to the issue? Absolutely. So, you know, there are a handful of different bills and initiatives that have that are sitting in Congress waiting to be voted on or waiting to pass. Um, a really important one is universal background checks. I think universal background checks is a crucial bill, as does over 90 percent of the country want universal background checks. Right now, um, you're not many states have requirements in which you are required to pass a background check if you're a private seller, but it's not at a federal level. And given that, you know, with the exception of Hawaii, most of the United States is continuous and somebody can buy a gun somewhere else and bring it in, it's important that some of these laws become federal law. So well, what about the Brady bill? You you mentioned a few minutes ago that the Brady bill called for background checks. What, what's the difference between a background check and the Brady bill and um, a, a better background check, a better statute on that? That you would seek now? Absolutely. So the bill that's currently uh, in Congress is basically to close the loophole for private sales. So federally, if I wanted to sell you, Jay, a gun, I could sell you the gun without you having to undergo a background check. But if I was a licensed gun dealer and you chose to buy the gun from me, you would have to come in my store, fill out the paperwork, and get a background check. Mm, so really, okay. the hope of the background check bill is to close that loophole for private sales. And you know that same um, law applies for gun shows. You can walk into a gun show and buy a gun in many states without undergoing a background check. You can yeah. also buy a gun online. There are certain websites. You know, one of them is called Arms List, which is essentially Craigslist for guns, where you can post a gun and buy a gun, and there's no accountability and no background checks that are done. So the universal background check would require everybody to have a background check if 
if they're seeking to buy so why would I go to a gun store anymore? It sounds like gun stores have been, have been cut out of the equation. Uh, it's so much easier to go on the web and and uh, and buy it off a, a website without the background check. Uh, it's almost like, why do I care about gun stores? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, an, it's an interesting point you raise. I mean, I think that there is a, most people, most gun owners are lawful gun owners and they want a gun, you know, for the sport or, you know, because they feel entitled to it and they know and they take safety classes and they know how to handle a gun in a safe way. So those type of those type of individuals would absolutely go to a gun store to purchase the gun because they have the most selection, the biggest types of guns and well-priced guns. But if you're in the criminal marketplace and you can't get a gun through through legal means, people often seek getting a gun through private sales. They seek um, going on the internet to buy a gun, like a Lego kit that you can put together yourself called a ghost gun. They can buy a gun through, like I said, arms list or one of these organization and one of these other types of, of websites, or they can, you know, buy a gun through a licensed dealer through a legal means like a straw purchase, um, which is illegal. So there are plenty of ways for criminals to try and get guns. And our hope is that um, some, some of this legislation can stop that and cut off the different black market ways in which a criminal could get guns. And certainly my goal in this pod, in this, um, in this interview is not to tell criminals how to get a gun, but there are certainly many loopholes, um, that exist. And I think states, especially states like Hawaii are looking to try and close some of those loopholes, um, for its citizens, which I think is wonderful. You know, I, I remember a um, TV uh, uh, TV movie about uh, you know a, a news a news segment about a gun show in the South, and um, you know in Hawaii we don't we don't have gun shows that I know about, but uh, this was a gun show apparently that happens on a regular basis in many places in the South, and it was huge, huge. It was the biggest hall you could imagine, and there were truly thousands of people buying and selling guns. It was the biggest swap meet you ever saw. And, and I didn't realize until I saw that movie just exactly what kind of a problem there is in terms of trading, selling, buying guns in this country, all without background checks. Absolutely. So like I said before, background checks um, are a really important bill that Congress could pass. Another bill, um, if you wanted me to bring up another one that Congress could pass is the assault weapons banned. And this was passed um, as recently as July of this year in, in the House um, with bipartisan support. So, you know, it's waiting to be brought up in the Senate, but an assault weapons bill really could stop a lot of the mass shootings that we're seeing in this moment in time. You mentioned um, the, the, the Lego, uh, Lego guns, and I, I wonder if you could help us understand what that is uh, and uh, how dangerous it is and what, if anything, could be done uh, in Congress or by law enforcement uh, to uh, limit the number of Lego guns out there. Absolutely. And so um, I call them Lego guns, but what they're, what they're formally called is ghost guns. And the reason why they're called ghost guns is because they're guns that are unserialized. So every single gun that's sold through lawful means and really every gun starts 
in a lawful way. It's manufactured, it's sent through a distributor, it's gone to a gun store. And then at some point, if it enters into a trafficking or a legal way, it enters into that. But it all starts for the most part through legal ways. And all of those guns are serialized, which means that if that gun is used in crime or recovered in crime, what the um, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms can do is they can take that serial number and they can figure out how the gun got there. So they can, it's called a trace. They can trace that gun back to the dealer who sold it, to the distributor, to the manufacturer. So you can really keep track of how these guns ended up where they are. And, um, you know, organizations and um, regulatory agencies like ATF can look at that data and use that as an enforcement. The difference with ghost guns is that they're not serialized. So individual companies on the black market are, are um, creating guns that don't fit within the definition of a firearm. If it fits within the definition of a firearm, it has to have a serial number. So they're building these guns that have different parts of the firearm, but they're not necessarily assembled together. So what that means is that you could go online and order one of these guns, um, have it delivered in most states. Hawaii actually has passed a wonderful law against ghost guns. But prior to that, um, what you could do is you could go online, you could order one of these guns. It would arrive in your house in a box that looks like an Amazon box, although they're not from Amazon. And you know, oftentimes they come zip tied together and you take your screwdriver and you screw it together and you can have a handgun or you can have an AR-15 style gun with no background check. They're not traceable. So if they're used in crime, they can't hold anyone accountable for how they got there. So it's real. And what's interesting is ghost guns, if you look at the statistics, they're not showing up where you can easily get a gun in the black market. They're showing up in markets like Hawaii or California in their crime scenes because it's an easy way to get a ghost gun in states that have pretty serious regulations about who can have a gun and the type of gun you can have. Can they be seen uh, by TSA if you uh, walk through an airport security station? Yes, I think most of them can. There are a handful, I mean, ghost guns is a broad term. Obviously they have guns that you can, you know, print on a 3D printer that are made of plastic that might not register in that way. But the ghost guns um, in general that I'm referring to are typically made um, out of modern out of modern parts, um, which include being able to be picked up through a metal. Any other statutes you would uh, support in Congress to limit gun violence? Yeah, so I mentioned um, expanding background checks and the assault weapons ban. The third one that I would mention, which is also still pending, is an enhanced background check. And this one closes what's called the Charleston loophole. And what the Charleston loophole is, is the Charleston loophole is um, a loophole that exists that basically says, if you go to buy a gun and your background check is not completed within three business days, um, that dealer can choose to sell you the gun, even though the background check is not finished. And what that means is that, um, you know, most good dealers, most safety conscious dealer will wait until the next background checks come back. And once they come back, it'll give you either what's called a proceed or a deny. And what a proceed or a deny is, is as they say, a proceed means, you know, legally they pass the background check and assuming there are no other red flags for the purchaser, you can sell the gun. 
Whereas a deny means there's something that came back in the background check and you absolutely cannot sell the gun. So, um, but oftentimes, you know, it takes NICs and the FBI a bit of time to look at your records. Most of them come back very quickly, but there's a few where there may be something that they need to double check to see whether someone might pass a background check or not. So what they do is they put you into what's called a delay status, which means they don't have an answer right away, but they're looking for it. Now, the chart, the way the law is currently written is um, you, if that background check has not been completed in three business days, that dealer at their discretion can legally sell you the gun under federal law. I mean, certain states have closed this loophole on a state level, but on a federal level, it means you can sell the gun. And that um, that loophole was how the Charles in the Charleston church shooting several years ago, how that shooter got his gun. So closing that and making sure that you have a concrete, you know, proceed or deny prior to transferring the gun um, is really an important law. And you know, all of these laws that I've I've mentioned, the assault weapons ban the enhanced background check closing the Charleston loophole and universal background checks are all things that um, that you know gun safety advocates and gun owners all agree on as really low hanging fruit in terms of you know things that really could continue to save more lives so that's one of the reasons why you know they're important pieces of um, legislation and hopefully there will be some movement on them at some point the bills have been drafted. They're they're sitting there waiting for some sort of vote, um, and hopefully that vote is is passing them. Why is it so hard to get them through Congress? There, it would seem obvious that uh, the fewer guns in the country, uh, the the less gun violence. Especially when you're talking about guns that are uh, manufactured for war scenarios, not self defense by any stretch. Um, why is it so hard? Uh, who is opposing? I mean, I, I, I think I know part of the answer here anyway. Who is opposing all these uh, gun control measures? You know, the the gun lobby is extremely strong. And the gun lobby is best served by people buying guns. Um, and that includes citizens buying more guns. And it, in, and it involves law enforcement needing to buy more guns to protect citizens. And, you know, it's an industry where the gun industry profits as long as guns, as long as guns are being sold. And they have a tremendous lobbying, they have effort, and they fund these politicians, which, which sadly, is a disconnect between what their constituents actually want in most cases. Um, and the money they're getting in political in political fundraising. So wow. it's it's a tricky issue. It's it's certainly not a new issue. Um, the gun lobby has been around and quite strong for a long time, and it's gotten more strong and more extreme in in recent years. Certainly in this in this market, um, I was encouraged. I have to say by the fact that there was in response recently both to the Uvalde shooting. Um, and the Buffalo shooting, which were both just horrific, that there was a moment that caused everyone to pause and not listen to the political lobbyists and actually get together and pass bipartisan um, legislation. So I am hopeful that if they were able to do this, I hope it doesn't take more people dying to get to that moment. But I am hopeful that um, there will be additional efforts 
on the federal level and certainly um, on the state level, we've seen a lot of exciting, important bills um, being passed and being worked on in, in the state. And Hawaii is certainly one of those states that, you know, leading the charge in terms of passing really important gun safety bills. So my hope is that um, even if it takes longer, even if it's a long game on the federal level, that, you know, hopefully some of these states will pass some really important legislation in the shorter term. Mark Wood, you know, uh, New Zealand and Australia have uh, statutes uh, that call for the return, the repurchase of guns. They'll pay you a fair price for your gun and uh, and, uh, and you turn it in. And if you don't turn it in, you go to jail. And there's a lot of carrot and stick kind of <laughs> encouragement there. And it has, it has worked. Uh, people have turned their guns in, no surprise. Um, and in fact, the number of incidents of gun violence in both of those countries is down to a tiny fraction of what it was before and certainly what it is in the United States. Is there any chance that you see going, you know, until we're all old and gray, is there any chance that you see of, of statutes like that here in Congress? I, I think the gun violence problem in the U.S., sadly, is, is very American and very unique the U.S. I think given, you know, certainly some of the protections of of the Second Amendment and some of the interpretations of the Second Amendment, which, you know, we'll have to do a, we'll have to do another uh, get together on, on whether it's accurately interpreted or not. That certainly we could do an entire session just, just on that. But given, um, given what the, um, what the Second Amendment stands and given the gun culture in our country, I don't necessarily see a parallel situation to New Zealand, but I am optimistic that some of these gun safety laws will ultimately save lives if, if we can get them passed and, and hold, hold those, you know, um, accountable under the, under hold those who are selling guns to people who shouldn't have them. Um, we can hold them accountable. Well, you're or, talking about accountable, but um, your practice is a, is a civil practice. You're not involved in prosecuting anybody or, for that matter, I, I suppose, defending them in, in gun control uh, cases, uh, the use of guns. Uh, so I, I'd really like you to you know, help our audience understand what the civil practice of gun control is like. Uh, who are your clients? I mean, don't tell me their names, please. Uh, who are your clients? Um, what, what, what has happened that uh, makes them want to go to court? And who do you wind up suing? And what kind of reception you get, uh, you know, in terms of the outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So all of my my clients are primarily victims of gun violence, um, and they've all been through, you know, the most horrific trauma that they have ever gone through, like most, you know, civil tort victims. And, you know, we have a variety of different types of cases. Um, you know, I have some cases on behalf of, of family and children who are un- unintentionally shot because you know the gun industry is not regulated by the Consumer Product Safety Commission so they're not required to have mandatory safety features or their products can't be recalled in the same way that a water gun or a nerf gun would be so i have certain cases um, that are product liability cases against the gun manufacturers i have cases um on behalf of um, gun, victims of gun violence against gun dealers for selling guns and trafficking and illegal straw purchases. 
I have, um, I represent victims of gun violence against um, the gun, um, gun manufacturers for their negligent marketing of cases that encourages people who are prone to violence to, you know, buy their types of guns. And those are some of the high profile types of shootings that we've heard about in, in recent years. Um, and then we also work on behalf of, you know, cities and states to, to hold the gun industry accountable. We have a case currently on behalf of the city of Gary, Indiana, which is holding, you know, the gun industry accountable for all the carnage that it's caused in the city. So, you know, impact litigation is really a tool to hold, hold the gun industry responsible the same way, you know, Big Tobacco was able to be held responsible and it it became a public, it created a public health campaign um, and it really caused them to ultimately, you know, change their practices and change the, the voice in the country. So that's a lot of what our impact litigation is, is driven at. And, you know, the other thing I would mention is that, you know, like I mentioned before, the gun industry has certain special protections um, because of their lobby and they have in they were able to pass in the mid 2000s an um, a immunity statute, which limits gun violence victims from being able to have their day in court. So a lot of our, our work is um, geared at overcoming that federal statute and creating a good body of precedent so that gun violence victims have access to the justice. How do you do that? If, if they, uh, you know, the, the gun manufacturers have immunity, how do you get around that? So um, the immunity is limited, uh, and it certainly is limited, and there are certain exceptions carved out of it. So you know we bring we bring cases that you know establish precedent showing what these exceptions are, and we also argue um, that the that this statute is unconstitutional. So obviously, you know our policy team is working to repeal it in court, um, and we are working to develop a body of precedent that paves the way for gun violence victims to have their moment in court. So are your cases frequently jury trial cases? And if they are, what kind of reception do you get in, among juries? And is that geographical? Uh, and do they, they you know, give you walloping uh, um, verdicts? Because I tell you, I'm volunteering now, Aaron. I want to be on one of those juries. I know what to do. <laughs> Jay, I would I would love to have you as a juror on one of my cases, truthfully. You know, I what's interesting about um, jurors in this case is even gun owner jurors, even gun owner jurors. And, you know, I have a national practice, so I have cases in urban cities and I have cases in very rural areas where the vast majority of uh, the jury is a gun owning jury. But really, at the end of the day, you know, lawful gun owners want the same thing. They want their community to be safe. Um, they don't like people and they don't like actors that break the rules. For example, if a, if a gun dealer sells a gun in an illegal straw purchase, you know, it makes it harder for them as, you know, a lawful gun owner to be able to use their firearm and, you know, in the way that they choose. So, in general, it's been really interesting that, you know, jurors really do line up behind the idea of, of gun safety and holding those accountable who break the rules and endanger their communities. What about ammunition? I remember that after one of those massacres, uh, was it Kmart or Walmart, announced they weren't going to sell ammunition anymore or a certain kind of ammunition. Uh, can you, um, you know, attack the, the rash of gun violence that we have 
by attacking the availability of ammunition? Well, I, I think that ammunition is certainly a problem. In particular, I think these firearms that have high capacity ammunition um, are an even bigger problem. You know, if you're having an AR-15 and you you add an 100 round drum to it, you know, it fires almost like an, auto, an automatic weapon. If you have um, ammunition that, you know, a 10 round magazine, you can't do nearly as much carnage. So I certainly think the amount of ammunition you can hold in a magazine is also an important area um, where you can, you know, create some gun safety laws and rules around that. So when you say impact, you want to have a, a social, legal, national social legal impact on this whole phenomenon that we have in this country with our 400 million guns. Uh, and are you, are you getting there? Um, and how do you choose the cases? I mean, what cases would you not take when you are, you know, dedicated um, to having an impact? Yeah, so I mean, all, what, what I have found from doing impact-driven litigation is that, you know, filing a case makes that, it has a, really has a big ripple effect. So when you file a case, even if it's only on behalf of one victim, you know, gun dealers around the country who want to do the right thing. And I would say that most gun dealers do want to do, do the right thing. They don't want to sell guns off the books illegally in trafficking. There's a handful of bad apple gun dealers who sell a lot of crime guns, know they're selling a lot of crime guns and continue to sell a lot of crime guns. But most of them, I would make the argument, do want to do the right thing. And when they hear about incidences where you know gun dealers are doing the wrong thing, or alternatively, they hear about incidences about gun dealers reforming their practices and changing their practices to have safer practices. Um, that really can have a ripple effect, you know, on gun dealers. And they hear about what other gun dealers are doing, or they hear gun dealers come out and make public safe statements about gun safety. And, you know, they copy that. And so it does really have a ripple effect, is what I found in my experience. And certainly, you know, I've I've been against large corporate dealers and corporate dealers who have large stores and a big footprint, if they change their practices, that really does have a wide um, impact as well. It reminds me of uh, some, some stockbrokers, you know, who impact stockbrokers who would tell you never, ever buy any stock in any capacity or never buy any fund that held any stock uh, in guns. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to me that you can get impact that way, too, if everybody followed that rule. Uh, yes. No, I, I definitely think that there is a role for corporate America to play in terms of holding, you know, the gun industry accountable for their role. Absolutely. I think yeah. that, you know, I hope that more companies lift up their voices and, you know, do things you know, really, and really sort of put pressure on the industry and in other ways that would will cause them to, you know, sell guns safely and manufacture guns with safety features and be accountable for when they don't. This strikes me that anybody who is dedicated to doing impact in this area um, is going to have a secondary impact. That is, if people know that there's lawyers out there like you 
who will take these cases and will pursue these cases, win, lose, or draw. Um, that's pretty That's pretty frightening to a, a gun dealer, uh, uh, de depending on who the defendant is, a gun owner, a gun manufacturer. Uh, and even if you don't come out with the kind of judgment that I would give you, um, you <laughs> you're still making a statement in the community um, to the others uh, who might be engaged in the same conduct. So it, it has, I'm sure, it has, as you said, a ripple effect uh, uh, around the whole community. So my last question to you, Aaron, is uh, are there others, uh, are there other Aaron's around, other um, Brady projects around um, that are doing the same thing? Because we need a lot of you. We need you to, you know, be a wave of accountability, a wave of litigation uh, as the best choice, you know, to. Um, to 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 have impact on this, and I wonder if um, you have friends, associates, colleagues uh, who are doing the same thing, and whether they are having an effect, and and whether it is a a, a growing area of practice. Uh, I'm hoping that it is. Yes, and I I think I mean, unfortunately, the the rate of gun violence continues to raise and remain stable in our country. So there are no shortage of cases, and you know, Brady does a lot of cases and we've certainly paved the way, but we also work really hand in hand with the private bar. And I encourage, you know, private attorneys to bring these cases. And if they, they don't know how to pick up the phone and call me and, and I'll tell them how to do it and sort of walk them through ways that they could be, they could be successful. It's really important, um, you know, for us to empower the community, the private bar to, to, to keep bringing these cases because they're important. And certainly, you know, Brady, you know, views itself and wants to be a thought leader. And but this is not something that we can uh, we can solve um, with uh, with the footprint of our organization. So our hope is that we inspire other lawyers to work with us, bring cases, um, because it really is an important issue. And Jay, if I may, I would definitely like to to tell your tell your viewership uh, about our email address. If you have any questions about you know my work or about Brady's work, our website is www.bradyunited.org. And if any of your viewers have you know are interested in the topic, we always appreciate additional supporters of Brady. There are so many ways to get involved in the issue. Um, well, well beyond um, just knowing about it. So we have a really interesting podcast as well, which I hope you don't mind that I lift up on your show because it really touches on a lot of these different issues and certainly looks at many, many different aspects of gun violence. That um, it's called Red, Blue, and Brady. So if any of your of your viewers are interested in learning more about what we do or about different issues, you know, we have detailed, detailed podcasts. I have a bunch of them on different cases that we've handled, um, that I've handled at Brady. And we've also have, you know, detailed deep dives into all of these policy issues, um, as well as, you know, what we're doing, you know, from a public perspective as well. Well, it's clear we're going to have to do another show also, Aaron. We're going to have to come back and drill down on some of these points we, we, we discussed. Uh, Aaron Davis, uh, uh, the Brady, Brady United Organization uh, for Gun Control. We really appreciate your work, appreciate your coming on the show, and appreciate your contribution to the country. And this is, this is it's much, much more 
much beyond just ordinary practice of law. It is practice of law for the benefit of everyone. Thank you, Erin. Jay, thank you for having me. And thank you again for lifting up, lifting up our issue. You know, people like you and voices like you who are really helping us get out our messages is very appreciated on our end. So thank you for having me. I would, I would love to come back another time and certainly continue this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Erin. Aloha. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.